Hey, before we get started, if you're listening from London, there are two Architecture Foundation lectures coming up at the Barbican Center you might be interested in. First, the Bordeaux-based architect Duncan Lewis will be speaking on Tuesday, November 21st. He worked with the furniture maker Shira Kuramata, as well as architect Slakatan Vassell, before starting his own practice in 2000. And his work often merges structure and vegetation in strange and dreamlike ways, creating new landscapes and microclimates. And then on Wednesday, November 29th, Friends of the podcast Jack Self and Sam Chermayev will be on stage together in conversation about their work, which, in very different ways, attempts to reinvent domestic life. Check the show notes in this episode for more info and to book your tickets, which, by the way, if you're under 25, are only five pounds when you become a Young Barbican member. Okay, now onto the show. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the Lagos-based architect and curator of this year's Sharjah Architecture Triennial, Tosin Oshinawa. Since the 1980s, architecture has seen a proliferation of biennials and triennials, which have, in many ways, influenced the currents of architectural thought. And yet, until recently, their focus has been predominantly on Western architects and their ideas. In contrast, Sharjah's focus reflects on its shared ties with the wider region, extending from West Asia to South Asia, and to the Global South more broadly. Titled The Beauty of Impermanence, An Architecture of Adaptability, this year's Sharjah Triennial considers solutions built from conditions of scarcity and explores how this might impact sustainable design today. I spoke with Oshinoa in Sharjah during the opening weekend of the Triennial in mid-November of 2023, and the conversation began by addressing the Triennial itself before unfolding into a much more personal discussion of the contradictions that emerge between exhibition and practice. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, my name is Tosi Oshino. I'm an architect uh, running a practice in Lagos, Nigeria called Oshino Studios. I am here as the curator for the second Sharjah Architecture Triennial titled The Beauty of Impermanence, an Architecture of Adaptability. I wanted to start by asking you about how one goes about curating a triennial like this when the majority of participants are from the global south and are relatively unknown or undiscovered, at least within conventional design media or design institutions. So how do you find these people in the first place? Interesting question. Um, I think a lot of what tends to happen within the Global South, and I'm sure this happens also in the Global North, is people work within communities. You know, within every community, you know, there's an extension that goes into another community as a series of networks. So I have a good network within West Africa, between two or three connections to East Africa and similarly to South Africa. So I'm relatively able to find my way around my continent. But for the subject matters that I picked, and, and specifically honing on this idea of scarcity, which tends to be a condition that occurs across the global south, I was very aware that um, I didn't have access or knowledge within regions outside of my own. And for this, I worked with um, an advisory board of six members. I have Ho Al-Qasim, who is, who is the president of the Triennial. I have Rahul Matora who teaches at Harvest GSD and also has a practice in India. I have Mariam Kamara, who would also open up potential participants within West Africa who I wasn't familiar with. 
I have um, Paolo Traveris, who was instrumental in ensuring that I was able to access South America because that was the one region that was more challenging because of language. And then I had Yinka Shunubare, who is a very celebrated Nigerian-British you know, artist, who also brought to the table suggestions about how to widen the scope of, um, of the theme. And uh, I had Beatrice Gailey. And because of her platform, The World Around, which is specifically looking at climate change, she was quite instrumental in also um, giving suggestions. So I had, um, I had a list, obviously, and through a series of meetings with the advisory board, we went back and forth, you know, starting with names, taking some out, adding some in. The notion of being a curator brings with it a level of generosity and giving because you were giving a platform to other professionals within your space. And being able to contribute or participate in the capacity where you get to build something, you know, that's potentially an opportunity to explore a completely different uh, market, so to speak, and to have skills shown in that market that could potentially also lead to work. So it's, it's, it's been very, very, very interesting. But there, like I said, there is a, there's a generosity and a consciousness that you are, you are carrying so many more people than yourself as a practitioner into the opportunities that can come from being able to share this wider message. Mm. I like the way you framed it as expanding a market in a way yes. for contributors or participants. It seems like it really is taking the triennial model as a kind of incubator yes. and using it to develop burgeoning practices yes. who may not have exhibited before. Exactly. And there's a lot of original work commissioned as well? Majority, we have, um, we have three loans and two of those loans have reappropriated to root their um, exhibits in, in the location. Um, Asif recorded new music for Kalpa um, and, and Teo, the, um, the Vietnamese um, artist, um, reappropriated her video on the Brille Soleil um, with, with some additional uh, content that relates to the actual school that we're in, the Al Qasimi school, which also happens to have breeze blocks, which you know is, is really the subject matter of her film. So it's, it's very it's very interesting and I think also maybe the model of the triennial affords us that opportunity because there's a lot more, there's a significantly more, there's more time to actually have the rigor of um, evolving and developing a, a, um, a proposal that will eventually be exhibited. And I will say that for all the participants, there's no one that submitted that has not evolved and refined their first proposal before we got into the process of production. So, you know, that, that rigor which you would have in academia of the crit and the evolution of an idea and refinement has also, you know, happened here. And, mm. and I hope that that richness is visible in the work. And just for listeners who might not be familiar, the two designers you mentioned are Asif Khan, who's a London-based yes. architect and designer, uh, and it was his film... Kalpa. Kalpa, yes. that you were referring to. And then the other was Teo Nguyen Pan. Yes. It's a beautiful film that I had actually seen at the Venice uh, Biennial in 2021. No, 2022, the Art Biennial. And it's looking at 
the life of a construction worker or a worker who happened to work in construction and the manufacture of the Brill block. And I remember when I watched this film, I actually thought that this typology or this patterning that you get from the blocks was only done in West Africa. So it was maybe with a little bit of shock that I realized that this was a solution that was across tropical regions at the turn of modernism. And I think um, there's so many locations that have this and for two or three generations past, we think it's a reference, but it's not. It's an imported uh, typology, but there are so many ways you can resonate or adapt it to you or personalize it to your culture. But what's really interesting about her film is it, it speaks you know, the story goes along the lines of this construction worker and the affluence that comes from working in this factory. But at the turn of the develop or the, the commercial sale of air conditioning, you know, the factory that was producing the breeze blocks stops uh, having work. And then his fortune also um, dis disperses. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting when you think about this idea of technologies and um, this storyline of how air conditioning, so really the story at the end is actually about air conditioning and the fact that, you know, this form of technology became no longer attractive, it was no longer seen as progressive and it's replaced with another model which completely changes the way we live, the way we inherit our buildings and the way we even dress. And it, it really links to the overarching theme of the triennial, which is all about exploring design solutions that are born from conditions of scarcity in a way that elevates them over more standard technical solutions. I mean, could you talk a bit more about how you see this triennial distinguishing itself from other triennials and biennials in art and architecture, which have really proliferated in the past decade? Mm -hmm. And to me, and I'm sure to, to most people, constitute uh, a more kind of Eurocentric or Western uh, mode of knowledge production or cultural production. How does Sharjah distinguish itself or differentiate itself from that, that circuit? I think, I think first of all, the reason why this is so important is because it's important to have representation in this space. In having representation in this space, then we're able to bring many more voices of this context to an audience, not just for this region, but also globally. As was said in the, um, you know, the keynote panel, you know, there is no center, there should be no center. All these different localities, these nodes, all have a value to contribute to this global conversation. And we can learn from these areas. And the practitioners who exist here and who are thriving in their practices, you know, can contribute and everyone else can also learn from them. And I think having, um, having this put into a similar par with other global exhibitions, one is a validation. It's a validation for the region, it's a validation for the practitioners that they're producing good work, but also, like I said, a reference so that, you know, as we learn from the North, we can also learn from the South. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting that we are getting to a point where there's becoming almost a democratization of, of, of whose system is, is, of, 
is, is more powerful or whose system should be, um, should be referenced. And I think it's when we get to this point where we, we see the, the value add for, for all regions that we can really start to address some very challenging you know, problems. I'll, I'll give an example. You know, within the regions of China and Japan, so much of their development was very different to what happened particularly in Africa in terms of how much colonialism imposed or erased of culture. My grandparents grew up eating with their hands and this was normal. They won't use a knife and fork. Um, I was brought up in an education that it was seen as inappropriate to eat with your hands. But if I look at my grandparents, the way that the ritual of washing your hands before you eat and even the way the food is handled, there's a very beautiful sweeping movement of the wrist, you know. So it looks very elegant. Um, it's very hot. <laughs> so I always used to think to my grandmother, you know, how does she handle this hot food? But, you know, I was like, yeah, it, was, it just looks strange. But then when you see, you know, people from China who eat with chopsticks, they didn't swap their culture for a fork and knife. <laughs> You know, and you will still get people who use both there. You know, there should be no reason why I shouldn't have learned to eat with my hands and to be able to eat with a knife and fork. You know, and, and this is the point I'm trying to make. This idea of a reference, you know, or an attainment of a certain culture as being of a higher, um, a higher culture than another culture. I think this is what we need to erase um, and value what we can take from each locality and I guess generally improve things. A lot of your work in practice, um, as well as your curatorial work, as you've written elsewhere, is interested in cultural representation in architecture, and questions, as you've said, what constitutes an African building in particular. So this is kind of building on what you're discussing around cultural expression and celebrating certain histories or indigenous um, and formerly erased or overlooked aspects of, in this case, African culture or cultures of the global south. What is an African building now? <laughs> Interesting. Um, I'll be honest, I realize that it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in a, in a, in a physicality or in a, in a material representation. And, and this really has has been a journey and I still think I'm on it, you know, in, in trying to, in my mind, create something that I can crystallize, but, you know, something that for another generation will see and, and take as a reference. But when I started this, uh, you know, what to anyone from the continent has as a representation of an African building is a traditional building, a building of the vernacular, you know, and the vernacular, usually being a building built on materials of a period, um, built on materials of that locality, but done at a certain period in time. Um, and obviously the way the home was used was dependent on the lifestyle or the activities that would have happened. So for example, in traditional African building, we did not sit on chairs because there was no notion of a table or a system of operational working that required such a facility. If you lived in a hut, you would get up from a mat that you slept on on the floor and you would go to the farm. You would come back and sit on a mat under the tree and the only person who would sit in an elevator position would be the chief. The function of life would determine the objects and the design of the elements around. But when you look at a lot of these cultures that have been propelled into modernity through initially imperialism and the colonialism and then the nation state, 
there's so much that happened in such a short period of time that the technologies of build that should have adapted to the ways of life, there wasn't that natural trajectory. But, um, you know, and so a lot of our early buildings are very much of the modernist era and also concrete added a convenience of speed that, you know, more traditional technologies had no way to compete against. And so all of a sudden we have a series of buildings that are designed externally, brought in, and then life is now adapting to them. What I can say is that in a Nigerian or a Yoruba home, our use of space is, is very um, specific and within all cultures. Um, if you look at the traditional courtyard house in West Africa, there are a series of public and private spaces. There is a space to entertain external guests and more um, internal spaces that are almost a hybrid between public and private where the family would dwell and visitors who are close to the family can be received. And then you then have the private quarters. So you have this layering of public and private space that exists in a home. And when you see um, modern iterations that came after modernism, where you had the first and second generation of architects who were practitioners, they were then in a position to start to re-imbibe these elements of culture. Um, for example, um, in a Nigerian home, you very rarely would put the kitchen at the front, which you could have in a terrace property, sometimes in Europe, because the kind of food we cook is, is quite industrial. You need a big sink and a, there's a lot of meat and tomatoes, you know. Those would have had a separate access that would have been taken around the back of the house. It's not seen as a front of house activity. You know, what's really interesting in Nigerian homes today, um, for people who are quite affluent, they will have two kitchens. They'll have the European kitchen that is the presentation kitchen that no food is cooked. <laughs> and then there's the back kitchen <laughs> where the big industrial cooking, which is how we eat, the kind of food that we eat is prepared. So, you know, <laughs> it's very interesting when you start to see how these nuances of culture can inform spatial arrangements. So you may see homes that have a very modern contemporary look, but if you actually look at the layers and the appropriation of space, then you can see how African they can be. I mean, what you're describing is a kind of hybridity yes. at the root yes. of this definition of contemporary African architecture. And it reminds me of some figures that you've brought up in lectures before. In particular, this woman, Nancy Wolf, mm -hmm. who I think is from Pennsylvania. She's mm -hmm. a, like a white American woman. Who, yes. Um, immigrated. How did you find this? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, listeners uh, should look, look her up, look up her work. There are these graphite illustrations that render really vividly the tensions between modernization yes. and technology yes. and traditional African culture. And of course, seen from an outsider's perspective. And then there's another figure, Damas Nwoku, yes. a Nigerian artist and designer who founded this collective called the Zaria Rebels, um, who were together trying to introduce indigenous ideas and forms into the post-colonial landscape, and also incorporating Western techniques. I mean, considering this state of hybridity that these kinds of figures exhibit, where does that leave you as both a curator, let's begin there, and then maybe after that, as a designer yourself? I mean, how are you, how are you finding hybridity in your decisions on, on how work is displayed and who's showing it at the triennial here? Very, very interesting question. Um, and to be honest, I think this is, um, this generation of practitioners, I think, are, the, are the, really the first 
who are in a position, including myself, to really address this. Um, Demaswoku is, is an amazing architect and very much ahead of his day. And his model of practice was so unorthodox. <laughs> he was working in the 80s, primarily. He was working 80s in the and 80s. 90s. And at a time when so much of what was considered as progressive was not African. But you know, that experimentation of being able to explore materiality with a traditional and a contemporary and a post-colonial condition is so important because how do we develop these how do we develop these typologies if we don't experiment? Which is a great reason or one of the great grounds of having these kind of exhibitions to give practitioners the opportunity to step away from practice and to explore. And also for Nancy Wolf, I found a book of hers when I was studying at Kingston um, during my first degree. And I remember being so excited about seeing, you know, and, and she went to Nigeria as um, an artist and I think she taught at the university. And I think she was also dealing with this, this confusion of you've got this traditional culture that's been kind of propelled into modernity and, 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 and her, represent, her, her drawing is very beautiful of representing this tension that exists for a people who don't really know exactly where to sit because if you're traditional, you're seen as backward. If you're too progressive, you've almost stepped away from, from who you are. You know, I feel very strongly that where modernity and globalization has afforded us that I can, if I have money, I can buy glass from Italy and send it across to Lagos, you know, where any and everything can be imported. You know, it, 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 it removes this element of identity because the element of identity comes from the materials that are present in place. And it's how they're composed that creates a visual kind of representation. And that's what gave us our vernaculars everywhere in the world. You worked with the materials on ground. In a, in a world now where we're not limited by proximity, um, that completely throws this argument on its head. I think that's why I'm particularly excited about the work that Al Borde did, because they were able to take the principles of how they work, you know, in Ecuador, um, with found building materials and an understanding of the technology, the tectonics and the materiality of those materials in place and create an interesting architecture. Now, the irony is, is that they tend to work in timber. So this is a material that they're familiar with. And we were fortunate that Sharjah is replacing their electrical poles. Sometimes I wonder if this wasn't the situation, what would we have ended up with? <laughs> but I guess these things happen for a reason. And, and those, those elements of chance are also quite powerful. But I think also the fact that they took a material that is external, that just happened to be here, and they were able to use it in a manner that is familiar with their way of working, but then also to incorporate the idea of the mats, which is local to this region. And anyone who is from here seeing that can see an association with place. And I think those, those kind of elements help. And they are not from this region, but they have study, they've taken the time out, they've researched to create something that is contextually relevant. And that contextual relevance brings, I guess, an identity. So the project you're talking about is called Raw Threshold. And as you said, it's by the practice of Bourdais. I'm curious how your experience in curating this triennial has opened up possibilities for you as a practitioner. And I'm asking this because I think, in a way, leading up to the triennial, 
a lot of the work that has come out of your office is in a lot of ways to me quite conventional mm. and um, quite commercial necessarily. And so, I mean, there's kind of a lot to unpack here and I want to do it right. So yeah. I, to, I was just going to think aloud for a moment. Mm. There's this line in the opening statement of the publication that uh, compliments the triennial. I just want to read it aloud. Okay. And this is, this is a, a part of your introductory text. We must acknowledge that we have been misled by the idealized narrative of machine-driven individualism and capitalism. And as I was reading this, into my inbox comes <laughs> <laughs> um, a uh, announcement from like a, uh, like a PR announcement about a new building that your practice has just finished. Yes. Literally the same day that the Biennial opened, it's a new Adidas store yes. in, um, in Lagos, Nigeria. Yeah. And I was, I, was, <laughs> I was strangely excited by this. Yeah. This seeming contradiction. Yeah. Because to me, it seems to embody the contradiction that most architects need to grapple with. Mm. And to be specific, it's the contradiction between, on the one hand, the moral clarity of our ambition yes. as designers versus the reality of sustaining a practice. Of sustaining, providing a service. <laughs> exactly. And I think in the past, most of the work is about, most of your work in practice is about sustaining the practice and yes. making a profit. Yes. And we can get into this in detail in a moment, but I mean, in summary, the largest project of yours is this mall, Maryland's Mall. Yes. Which is a kind of emblem of capitalism, no? Mm. And there are a lot of private villas yes. and gated communities yes. as well. And so there's a kind of dissonance here mm. that I want to stay with. Yeah. It's very interesting. I'll be honest, I find myself... Sometimes I find myself feeling like a hypocrite because I have such a strong moral grounding in the subject matter, but I'm very much aware of the reality of um, ensuring one has a livelihood. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is the tension that exists, like you said, for many practitioners. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with Rahul, and he gave me a lot of confidence. This is Rahul Morota? Yes, he's a, he, on my advisory board. Okay, he's yes. a... He's a practitioner and also an academic yes. at and Harvard he, um, as yes, practices and between Harvard and, exactly. and India. And this is the reason, what you said is actually the reason why the conversation we had was so powerful. He said to me he was in India for 10 years before he stepped out to teach. He says it's very important for you to define and refine who you are as a practitioner before you go back into the classroom, if you decide to go back into the classroom. And he said in those 10 years he didn't even get on a plane to leave and he said that you've done just about 10 years of practice that you you know who you are and this is very important you will not easily be misguided into a value system that is not your calling but the reason why I mentioned this in particular is I run a traditional practice because there was no avenues in my environment to run an experimental practice um, I have friends who I went to school with at the AA who 
are very fortunate just by virtue of where they, where they operate to be able to kind of hybrid or to be able to teach. Um, I don't have this as an opportunity and that's why this trainer has been so important, so powerful. I had co-curated Lagos Biennial, which is an art biennial in 2019, but this exhibition has been really refreshing because it's given me an opportunity to re-engage theoretically um, with myself as a value system, but also with the parts of the profession that, to be honest, many people who just do architecture as a day job never engage in once they leave school. I wonder if we could talk more about the circumstances that led to you deciding to set up practice on your own. Again, similar, uh, very good question because um, I moved back to Nigeria in 2009 after working for a brief period at OMA. And I left OMA at, I think, after the 2008 recession, OMA had been commissioned, I think, to do quite a few projects in the Middle East. And with the recession, everything was coming to a halt. And so everyone who was on a contract, it was just like, you know, it's a plank, because your contract ended, it's like, we're not renewing, we're not renewing, which was expected. And I really enjoyed my time at OMA. I went there because I was particularly interested in the fact that REM had been so interested in Lagos as a city. And I remember when I was doing my first degree and I had seen the Harvard project and, you know, he spoke about this organized chaos. And it was the first time I had ever seen any form of international representation about where I was from. And what do you do next? You go work for that person, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and so that was great. But when I came back to Nigeria, I was terribly disappointed by what I saw in practice. There wasn't anything exciting design-wise. I'd finished at the A. I had all these grandeur ideas. People go to the A and they do amazing things afterwards. And you're finding yourself in an environment that doesn't seem to be enabling. Um, I was working at local practice doing very boring housing, bungalow housing for the oil and gas industry. There's nothing aesthetic here. It's just functional. And I started to get anxious. And um, when I set up my office, I was doing little coffee shops here and there, but really opportunities to explore materials and to create things. And I would always work with artisans. Through that process of collaboration, you're able to eventually refine, you know, a series of objects, which if I was working in Europe, I can't afford to go to a big manufacturer to have any prototype made, you know. So it, it afforded me a flexibility this idea of local industry that, that I didn't have. And so that was how I started my practice. Small, little experiments, and like with all practice, you do a little thing here, someone sees this and says, well, who was your architect? You move to the next one. And, and that was really how I grew the practice. It was very organic. And then there's also more to it though. I mean, I've listened to other conversations you've had on other podcasts, which in a way, sometimes they seem like private conversations. Mm. So where we're going to go now, if it's too personal, we'll just skip it. But at the same time, to me, it feels important to address yes. that um, during this period of transition to independent practice, uh, you became a single mother. Yes, yes. And to you, it was imperative to become a breadwinner. Yes. And I think when I heard that, to me, it was such a refreshing statement. <laughs> um, and this is at the same time maybe that you went into uh, study business administration, no? Yes, I've had many hats. <laughs> uh -huh. 
So you have an MBA? I have an MBA. I have a master's in business for architecture and design. Right. So I mean, we're very clear now about the imperative of pursuing profit. Yes. And I think this is where it becomes so much richer mm. when we we can understand the context for this motivation, and then see it alongside the the aspirations for a kind of almost anti-capitalist agenda within the kind of rhetoric of the triennial we see here, and to be fair, elsewhere and across academia as well. So with all that in mind, my real frustration or question really has to do with the transferability of the ideas that are established and distributed through this triennial and biennial system. The, the applicability of them to real life conditions mm. and the relevance of them as well. I think there's always this concern that within academia or the art world or this kind of exhibition circuit, it's a closed loop in a way and it's a self-affirming loop. But how often do these ideas escape into the real world and how applicable are they in practice? I think we have, we have three strands here. We have Renewed Contextual, which really is about, and, and some of the projects like the Albaldi project, um, the Hive Earth project, those are very applicable because you can see materially how they can be extended further. But we also have projects here that have been about questioning. So there's been a lot of emphasis on solutions, but also on reflections. Um, several of the projects in, uh, you know, for example, Intangible Bodies, uh, Sandra Paulson's project, which is about, you know, dust, the, um, dust as an accidental gift, which happens to be the project that my daughter finds the most fascinating, you know, um, which really is about an acknowledgement of this idea of humanity and, and a simpler time. And that's not going to change anything, but I think that opportunity to pause and reflect, where are we rushing to? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, I think those are important you know, those pause moments. Um, I don't see anything here as being direct with a clear, actionable set of solution points, but really an opportunity to reflect and think differently, ideally. Uh, and I hope that that will come across, will come across in the exhibition. But going back to some of the points you made, yes, I, I very much built practice from survival. And starting from survival and then getting to a point of realizing, oh, actually, I'm flying now. <laughs> I was just trying to, you know, get my feet off the ground. But, um, and then realizing that I can do so much more with this, I think is really refreshing, especially since I didn't start out like this. I think if I had had life in a completely serious, um, if life had been in a completely different series of conditions, I think I would have probably just worked in someone's office and probably worked very hard as I, I've always been a hard worker, but maybe made part, I've been happy with life. But I've been through in a series of, <laughs> a series of events that have informed me, but I'm very thankful for where I find myself because I definitely wouldn't be here without, without those conditions. I think also as I was developing my practice around, obviously COVID threw us all into a point of reflection and running a business and not doing too badly in Nigeria, but realizing that maybe I had just by sheer luck gotten my ship off the ground, realizing that that is not enough to sustain it long term. 
and realizing that I did not possibly have the skills to push this further than what I had already done was why I went to business school. And I think it's very important for all of us to know what you know and to also know when you don't know something. That acknowledgement of awareness is, significant, is, is highly significant. And when I think about that in relation to this exhibition, maybe I will see the vulnerability I feel is, I will set a series of, I will set a question. My prompt that I had to respond to in the close call as curator was, how will the global south deal with the challenges of climate change? There's nothing here in my response that is not from personal experiences of growing up in Lagos, leaving Lagos, practicing, uh, being educated in the UK, practicing and then coming back home. It's a, almost the hybridity of my awareness of two worlds that has allowed me to sit in this position. However, that refinement came from having to answer a question. As I leave this space, can I create the question for me to move forward to next? Or do I continue to evolve this question that I've answered? So, you know, I'm very aware that a lot of my values currently are based on the refinement of having to address this and the vulnerability of what next? We could end it there, <laughs> but there is a little more. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, I want to talk more about money. Yeah. I also want to talk more about role models. Mm. And there's one in particular you mentioned again in another interview you gave. You were asked uh, who are women that you look up to or women who to you embody strength. And one of those women was Margaret Thatcher. Yes. <laughs> and I'm listening to this. I think she's this. amazing. I think she was amazing. I'm listening to this <laughs> on the plane. Yeah. I almost spat out my drink. Like it, <laughs> um, and then uh, to kind of couple with that, yeah. I mean, I want you to talk more about that. But then at the same time, I, there's a statement um, you've shared elsewhere, this Yoruba saying, so Yoruba is your, yes. kind of, um, your culture. Yes. Um, that money doesn't have an owner. Yes. Can we... Can we talk about these two, <laughs> these two yeah. things I just put on the table? Let's start with Thatcher. Ah, you know, I was in the UK when, um, when she passed and, and they had the state you know, funeral for her. And I was very disappointed that she wasn't more celebrated. I know that um, obviously a lot of her policies, you know, caused a lot of strikes, you know, with the unions. She was very firm. But the United Kingdom today is still a global power because of her. And I think there's not enough acknowledgement that the policy she put in place ensured the stability of the economy. And I almost liken her to a strict parent who has not been thanked. <laughs> you and I can identify with this. <laughs> And I think, um, as a woman, what I find so profound is she will not be bullied. This lady is not for turning. It takes a lot to be the lone soldier in a room. It takes a strength, a confidence that it's not even common for most men. <laughs> you know, and to have stood by her value system 
with that principle as a purist, you know, I think there are not many people who you come across like that. And then to also learn that she had to learn to adapt herself to her environment. As a woman, you know, you can, in emotion, get hysterical and frustrated. And she learned to control her voice. So she was very aware that she was a minority, but she owned her slot. And I think that's something to be admired, especially as a woman who's working in the construction industry. I've left the building site in tears before. And I was so angry because <laughs> my client didn't listen. And he listened to his contractor. And you know, sometimes you might be sounding like a whiny voice. It's like two men are talking and they just tell you to be quiet, you know. And I left in annoyance and I cried on my way home. And I had a nap and I woke up and I was fine. But, you know, I went back to my job, you know, and, and you almost have to have that kind of resilience. And it gets easier with age because as you build your reputation and people take you as a no-nonsense person, then you don't have to fight every argument because they won't even come and argue in the first place <laughs> because they know what you, your value system is. But yes, I, I, I've always seen her as a reference, you know, and admired what she achieved. I'm just so saddened that there hasn't been more celebration of, of who she was. Who knows, in another 200 years, they might actually value and appreciate, you know, what she brought to the table. Um, and then she did this as a mother as well with a set of twins. I mean... <laughs> I mean, just to, to briefly touch on that second point that Yoruba say, that yes. money doesn't have an owner. To see those two things together, yeah. to me, embodies a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And it's to, it's to me a, a wonderful contradiction. And I don't think we have enough of that mm. in the way we exhibit architecture and the way we talk about it, aspirationally, the rhetoric around the future of the discipline. I feel like there's almost too much consensus. Mm. And so I relish these moments of contradiction inherent in you as a practitioner, as a cultural producer, as a curator. So there are many ways that that proverb can be, can be read. Um, so much of African society now is driven by the acquiring of money. And in many situations, the acquiring of money, which might not always be by the most honorable of means. And it's not uncommon. We have a lot of issues with corruption in governance. Um, and very sadly, you have people who are being celebrated, not because of their value add, but because people know they're wealthy. But the thing, the thing is, our, our economies, our, our capitalist system <laughs> is based on inflation and a hundred dollars today is not a hundred dollars tomorrow. And if you don't teach a child the value of making money, no matter how much you acquire, it will not go anywhere long term. And so that's, that's actually what that saying means, you know, it's important that you, you teach the value of hard work. And you mentioned you know, views may change on people like Thatcher two centuries from now. One of your biggest fears is that you will be forgotten. Yes. You're very concerned with legacy, being remembered by your children's children. Yes. 
You know, sometimes I wonder why this bothers me so much because I actually won't be here. But I think that for any, for any group of people, when you see people like Albert Einstein who explored physics as a quest, he wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna make him rich. He had a question he wanted to answer. And to see someone do something so selfless, even what we see here in the Gulf, with a monarchy system that says, I want to create this for my people. When you do things so selflessly, that's how to have generational development. Our biggest problem on the continent of Africa is leaders who have lack of foresight, who are so selfish that they deal with the immediacy of themselves and their children without thinking of two, three generations down the line. I think if we all think more selflessly and think about legacy and what we leave behind, we will do, we will, we will our actions will be more honorable. And um, I think when you think that far ahead to a time when you personally will not be present, to have done something of value that will speak long after your existence, your mortality, I think it's so powerful because then you will always make the right decisions. If you think, what's the implication of my action? If you think about it in relation to how we build and climate change, what is the implication of the materials I use? What's the implication of being involved in this project? And th this is where I think it becomes so interesting and challenging because the received wisdom is that the altruism of this long view that you're describing is at odds with the profit motive. Yes. <laughs> so here we have yet another contradiction. Yes. Which I'm sure it can be unpacked in all kinds of ways, but, but there it is. <laughs> but there it is, but there it is. I think um, when you say this idea of profit, we all have to be able to make ends meet, to be part of this, this global system. I think then the question should be, what do you consider as comfortable? What is enough? I don't think I'm looking to become the wealthiest person on earth. I'm not looking to acquire to the point where I don't know what to do with it. I just need enough to get what I need to do done, which is to ensure that I educate my child to the point where they will be fine on their own. I was raised by um, a gynecologist and he told us very early on, I'm not leaving you some money back. That's not his teaching. I will give you a good education and you'll be able to apply yourself. As long as I can do what I need to do to ensure that I have provided her with enough for the next phase, whether I'm here or not, then I'm good. And if it means that in the process of providing my service as work, I can earn to be able to do that, that's enough. That's, that's all I need. And so it's, uh, you know, in, in, in putting this exhibition together and I think about the sheer amount of consumerism we have globally. And I look at shows you see on American TV where they show somebody's house and they have, they have like a 50 square meter room of a wardrobe. Who needs that number of shoes? 
How many can you wear at any given time? You have 10 cars. For what? That's not normal. <laughs> that kind of, that's not what I, I don't, I don't believe or subscribe to that. I don't believe or subscribe to that model. But I do believe that we should all be able to do what we need to do. We've gone way over, but I think there's maybe just one more. Okay. Thank you for your patience. I'm doing this. <laughs> um, I kind of, of want to imagine myself beside you as you were a student at Kingston, mm. happening upon the work of this white American woman, Nancy Wolf. <laughs> because I've always been drawn to this notion of double consciousness that the, the writer W.E.B. Du Bois has explained in his work, The American Writer, um, where he, he explains the, again, the contradiction of understanding one's own culture through another's eyes, in this case, and in his case, through a Eurocentric gaze, mm -hmm. and the kind of incomplete or uh, unresolved identity that it leads to. And I feel like designers of color, designers from non-Western backgrounds generally, must be grappling with this and in a way are being asked to grapple with it very publicly insofar as identity is now leading the discourse on design that to be, to be a designer is to speak first on behalf of one's culture and to somehow find aesthetic representation of it. Mm -hmm. So how do you grapple with that in a way that demands to speak on behalf of, of an entire culture and the work you're doing? It's heavy, it's heavy, but um I don't, I try not to think about it too much, um, but I think this is why I think it's, imp it's important much further down the line when it comes to legacy. Because if I think about myself as a student in Kingston finding, you know, this lady's work, what I found exciting was, I didn't even know she was white initially, <laughs> but the fact that I saw something of my culture in her work, and that representation is the same thing that made me excited when I saw Rem's work. And this was me in 2000, 2001, 2003, you know. But then I think of a young African student today and having more, more um, modes of representation, not just now people of another race who've seen or is, are taking their, their culture as, as a subject matter, but now starting to see people that look like them taking on that subject matter. I think it's, it's important and it's a pyramid. We will continue to build on each other's um, experiences. When I was at Kingston and Leslie taught me briefly for a term, at the beginning of the semester when every tutor presents... This is, this is Leslie Loco. Yes. You know, I had no clue what she was talking about, but the three black students at Kingston all gravitated to her unit because all of a sudden, there was someone who looked like you in the classroom, you know. And um, I think the challenge for academia is until we start to have more people or more diversity within 
academia, there will always be that disconnect with the student. And um, I liken this to a parent who is actually learning on the job. If you have a three-year-old, you've not done this before. <laughs> You're learning to be a parent as they are learning to be a child. The same way a tutor who is not familiar with your cultural context are learning to critique you in that cultural context. And then that sensitivity of not wanting to offend sometimes means a tutor doesn't pay attention. Mm. And that student is struggling with not understanding why they're not doing well, or they're not being pushed, but they're not being pushed because the tutor doesn't know how to push. And so everybody's being safe. And so it's nobody's fault. <laughs> But until more, there's more opportunity or there's more accessibility, that won't change. And, I, and I, this is why these references are important, because we are building a knowledge base that will allow for a confidence for a generation of practitioners yet to come to the table mm -hmm. to be able to have that platform to really push the possibilities. If you are not pushed in, you know, in school, you cannot refine as a practitioner, as a designer. I mean, what's so interesting to me about these references, um, if we're talking about people like Wolf or Coolhouse, is that they are from a relatively or ostensibly normative yes. place. And yet, even they have had a formative cultural impact on your understanding yes. of your work and your culture to some extent. Yes. I mean, I'll be honest, I was so fascinated with the work he did with the Harvard School and, you know, all these references to organized chaos, this place that doesn't follow orthodox planning and is still functioning, you know, this was my normal. I just thought it was, I thought it was okay for people to sell stuff in traffic, <laughs> you know, and I grew up with this, you know, and then you, you realize that, I mean, there is no normal, but to some people, this is very strange. <laughs> But we just thought, well, there's traffic, you just buy stuff, <laughs> you know, and, and it's almost like this, these solutions, that this adaptability that happens in an urban context. And so just having this heightened awareness of, of these differences or the suggestion from, you know, you know, theorists about this was, was so enlightening. And then to be able to take and to build on this knowledge base for another generation of practitioners, I think is very powerful. Mm. Tosin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been lovely. Your research is very You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Tosin Oshinowo. Special thanks to speak to Laura Callender and Adrian LaHood. Thanks as always to Scandolin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.